You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 53, Dr. Glenn Livingston, on how to never binge again. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, food for life cooking instructor, health and wellness coach, and passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, behavior change, and motivation so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I hope that you keep coming back as a regular listener. You can find more of my work, including health and wellness videos, at VeggieFit Kids on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome back, veggie lovers. Thank you so much for being here with me today on this lovely Sunday. Like I said in the previous episode, interviews are going to be a little sporadic over the next 12 weeks until I get my manuscript done and I have a little bit more time in my schedule to open up for interviews and for doing a few different things with Veggie Doctor Radio. And one of the things I want to start integrating is caller questions. So I have a phone number that you can call and leave a voicemail with your questions. The number is 509-972-6582. And my goal is to answer one caller question at least per episode once I start getting those in. And I think it would be really fun and I would really love to know what you want to know. What are you curious about? What do you wanna learn more about? even about former episodes. Is there anything that I didn't address that you're curious about or want to know for your own family and children? So send me your questions. That's 509-972-6582. So today's podcast episode is with a PhD psychologist who through his own personal battle with binge eating and overeating on processed foods was able to discover a method to stop binging, to reach a healthy weight, and to really be able to navigate all these foods. Plus side is he's a vegan. And as he told me at the end of the episode, he was able to cure a few of conditions that he had through a vegan diet. So I hope you listen so that you can hear that from him. And it's just a really interesting conversation. I do recommend that you visit his website, Never Binge Again. That's neverbingeagain.com. It's all together where you can actually download his book for free and read it and see what you think. The approach is probably different than anything you've heard before. And to admit, it's probably not going to work for everybody, but we do talk about what types of people it works best on. And then I think that there's other things in this episode that we talk about that might really interest you, like identity and how our identity really plays into some of these lifestyle and habit decisions. What you believe yourself to be, what kind of person you are, what kind of character you have can help you adopt some healthy behaviors that you wanna have. So I really hope that you like this episode. But first, let me tell you more about 
Dr. Livingston. Glenn Livingston, PhD, is a veteran psychologist and was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. Glenn has sold $30 million of marketing consulting services over the course of his career. You may have seen his or his company's previous work, theories, and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Indian Star-Ledger, the New York Daily News, American Demographics, or any of the other major media outlets you see on this page. You may also have heard him on ABC, WGN, and or CBS Radio or UPN TV. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. Again, his website is Never Binge Again. I hope that you enjoy this interview and I will see you next time on Veggie Doctor Radio. Well, Dr. Glenn Livingston, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. It is a pleasure to be here and any show that starts with Veggie is a good friend of mine. Nice. I love that. Glenn, you have an amazing story that is a great background for why you have so much passion for what you do and what methods you use to help people with binge eating and overeating. So you, can you tell us a little bit about how you discovered your methods along with your personal story? How did you get to where you are today? Well, I got to where I am today through a long, painful journey. Let's just say that. And it wasn't so much through my education and career. It was much more through um, painful trial, trial and error with my own eating problem, very serious eating problem. So I was born in a family of 17 psychotherapists. And the standing joke in the family is that if something breaks, we all know how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. And the reason that's important, it's a silly joke, but the reason it's important is that I've always been a psychologist first and foremost. And sometimes when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you'll see later that when I tried to solve my own food problem, I came at it from the angle that, well, there must be, must be a hole in my heart. There must be something wrong with me psychologically. And if I could figure out how to fill that, then I would stop eating. But as it turned out, the solution I found had really nothing to do with that. Um, so when I was about 17, I figured out that because I'm six foot four and I'm reasonably muscular, that if I worked out for two, three, four hours a day, that I could eat anything that I wanted to. Um, six, 7,000 calories a day, whole pizzas, boxes of muffins, boxes of chocolate bars, bags, boxes, containers, wh whatever you could imagine, I could dislodge my jaw and stuff it into my face. And I didn't think it was a problem. I thought it was great. I thought it was like a special trick that I had. And I could never throw up. I just exercised it off. The only problem with it, of course, back then was that I spent most of my time either eating or exercising. And I could have been studying to get into school or playing on a sports team or doing any number of a variety of other productive things. But when I was 22 or 23, I got married. 
and I had patients. I was in graduate school and I had a two hour commute each way and I had responsibilities and I did not have the time to work out two or three hours a day. I mean, I had barely had the time to work out 20 or 30 minutes twice a week. But the food had a hold of me and I couldn't stop because it had a life of its own. And so I got fat. I got fatter and fatter and fatter. And the doctors were telling me that my triglycerides were 10 times what they were supposed to be. I remember a reading of over 1,100. I have a test that says 826, but I remember 1,100. I weighed about 260 at my highest weigh-in. I think it was probably 280 before that because I stopped weighing myself for a while. But um, I became a fat guy. I became a fat psychologist. And worse than that, I couldn't be a present psychologist. I didn't have the presence of mind that you really need to work effectively with patients. Because especially when you're dealing with the kinds of patients I was dealing with, I, I wound up working with suicidal patients and I wound up working with a, a lot of couples right after they had an affair. And, and for those types of patients, you really need to be present. It's not an intellectual endeavor. You need to lend them your soul. You have to be there, body, mind, and soul, and you have to want to do it. And I must have been decent because I never lost anybody, and I worked really hard to understand them, and I did all kinds of reading and stuff between. Um, so I lost a lot of sleep, but I never lost anybody. That said, I, I really wasn't present, and it really, really bothered me. So I went the psychological route. I went to all the best psychologists and psychiatrists and I had talk therapy and I took medication. I went to Overeaters Anonymous for several years. I, um, I even conducted my own study, 40,000 people. And all of it helped to a certain extent. And then things would get a lot worse. So I'd learned something, it was a soulful journey, and then I'd screw up and things would get much, much worse. Somewhere around the time that I was finishing that 40,000 person study, I was also coming out of Overeaters Anonymous and coming across another addiction paradigm other than the, gee, fill the hole in your heart and love yourself thin kind of thing, which turns it all around for me. The study itself came up with three interesting findings, which I got a lot of fame for, but didn't solve the problem. They were just very, very interesting clues which led me down a dead end but from that dead end I could see why I was at a dead end and then I could find the right solution. So I say that up front because people can get misled by these findings. First finding was that people that struggled eating chocolate, that was me, I always started my binges with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted, sometimes depressed. And that made sense, I was in a bad marriage, it made sense. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things tended to be stressed at work, and people who struggled with soft, chewy things tended to be stressed at home. So I thought, wow, this is really interesting. Now all I have to do is solve those underlying psychological problems for people, and they should be able to stop eating. So I figured I'd start with myself, and I went to my mom, who was also a therapist and happened to have raised me, and I said, mom, you know I'm struggling with my wife at the time, and so it makes sense that I'm kind of lonely or depressed, and I'm struggling with chocolate, and you've been a chocoholic your whole life also. What was it? Can you tell me what was it in my upbringing that could have set up this pattern? And she gets this awful look on her face, and she, she says, I'm so sorry, honey. I am so, so sorry. And I go, Ma, what is it? She says, sweetheart, I wish I could tell you differently, but um, 
you know, when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And we were just about pregnant and I was terrified I was going to have two kids and no husband. And I would just sit and stare. At the same time, my father, your grandfather, went to prison or just got out. And he was guilty and I didn't know it. And I'd idolized him my whole life. And it was a real shock to my system because he was the person I counted on most. And so, because I was so taken aback by everything going on in my life, I kept a big refrigerator on the floor and I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in the refrigerator. And I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And then I wouldn't have to hold you or feed you or comfort you. And you'd go running over to the refrigerator and you'd take out the Bosco and you'd suck on the bottle and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. So that's what happened. And if this were the movies, at this point, mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry, and I'd never have a problem with chocolate again. Well, we had the hug and the cry, and we forgave each other. And more importantly, I forgave myself. I, I noticed that I was much less self-castigating about all the eating problems that I would have. But the eating problem itself got worse, particularly with chocolate. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Until I came across a guy named Jack Trimpey who was writing about an alternative way to overcome addiction. And he explained that there were actually two brains. There's the reptilian brain, and then there's you. There's the brainstem that looks at something in the environment and says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. There's no love there. And this is why it's so difficult to love yourself out of an addiction because the part of the brain that responds to addiction doesn't know love. He says the rest of the brain, the part of you that's more uniquely human, the neocortex and to some extent the mammalian brain, that's the part that's concerned with, well, wait a minute, before I eat, mate, or kill this thing, what impact is it going to have on my tribe, the people that I love most, my family? And then the neocortex, which says, before I eat, mate, or kill this thing, what is this going to mean for my longer term goals? What's this going to mean for spirituality and creativity and art and music and contribution to society and my work and my play and all of my friends? What does this, what does this mean for the kind of person that I want to be in the world? And he said that the reptilian brain is not your inner wounded child. This is not a cuddly pet that you're trying to nurture back to health. This is more like a challenging wolf in a pack that the alpha wolf has to snarl down and get it to get back in line because it's challenging for leadership. It, when, when an alpha wolf sees a challenger, it doesn't say, oh, honey, somebody needs a hug. It says, get back in line or I'll kill you. Get back in line or I'll kill you. It's very, very primitive. And so he said that all of this talk, all of the deep psychotherapy and all of the you know, 12-step soul-searching might be interesting and good for your development as a human being, but it doesn't really help you with addiction. As a matter of fact, it confuses the issue, and it gives the, uh, it gives the reptilian brain and all of the, the incorrect uh, biological drives that it's directing towards the addictive substance, it gives it too much credit. Now, that was really interesting to me because I recognized... I, I never had children and I never commuted, so I had a lot of time for, my, for my, my career. So in addition to working with children and families, 
I also was consulting for big companies, many of whom were in the food industry. So very, very big companies in the Fortune 500. And I knew that what they were doing was directing a fortune and all the best research scientists to figure out how to engineer these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and salt and excitotoxins designed to hit your bliss point without giving you enough nutrition to make you feel satisfied. And that, that bliss point, they, they were targeting the reptilian brain. So I kind of put two and two together and said, okay, there's something going on here. Then I realized that what happens in animal studies when you short circuit the natural pleasure mechanism that the animal has. So if you put an electrode in a rat's brain, for example, and you wire that electrode to a lever and let that rat self-stimulate, that rat will press that button thousands of times per day to the exclusion of its survival needs. A starving rat will ignore food and press that button thousands of times per day. A nursing mother rat will ignore and abandon her pups and go press that button thousands of times per day. A rat will crawl over painful electrical grids to press that button thousands of times per day. So what's happening here? Well, I, I know that we're not, we don't have electrodes in our brain, but when you can walk out of a McDonald's and see a Burger King across the street, can't we make some argument that we're being given chemical electrodes, that these, these things we are eating these days from bags and boxes and containers and drive-throughs, they did not exist on the savannah. These are supersized stimuli. These are concentrations of pleasure that we were never meant to, uh, never meant to manage. And as a result, our survival drives have been hijacked and they are directed at the wrong thing. They're directed at the wrong thing. And they're directed at that thing for the purpose of industrial profit. So every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or container, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the bank. And I'm exaggerating. I'm not saying all these companies are evil, but I'm saying all these companies are evil. <laughs> I'm saying they're pretty evil. Um, it's, it's the nature of a, of a capitalist economy. There's not enough control on um, the health of the populace is more of an interest in the, in the profit of the, the corporations. So that's a whole other story, and I think we could get into politics about it. But, but when you put it all together, I said, wait a minute. I shouldn't be walking around ashamed that there's something wrong with me. I should be angry that my reptilian brain is being hijacked. And, and then I realized that the reason I was eating more chocolate was because after that story with my mom, there was this voice inside me, which I now know is the voice of my reptilian brain or what I call my inner pig. It was, it was the voice of that reptilian brain saying, hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Your mama didn't love you enough. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can find the love of your life, you're going to have to go right out and binge, binge, binge on chocolate. Let's go get some right now. Yippee. <laughs> and it, it's, a, it's a voice of justification. And at that point, I put it all together and I realized, okay, I can't love my reptilian brain out of this. I've got to dominate it and control it the same way that I dominate my bladder. I mean, there are times when I wanted to pee in my mother-in-law's living room, but I didn't, even though I had a very strong biological urge to do so. I control my bladder and I express it in the right way at the right place in the right time because I'm a human being. I'm not just an animal and I participate in society. And I said, okay, so 
I've got to, and this was all private. I was not planning to publish a book about this. I was not planning to um, do anything but get better myself. I said, okay, I have to stop trying to love this thing. I have to dominate it like a rabid animal. And so I'm going to call this thing my inner pig. And I'm going to draw very bright lines so I can distinguish healthy from unhealthy eating behavior. That way I'll know when my inner pig is squealing for its slop. So I said something like, I will only ever have chocolate on the last Saturday and Sunday of the calendar month. Very, very clear, bright line. And then if I heard a voice in my head that said, hey, Glenn, you worked out really hard today. You could afford some chocolate. Or go ahead, you can start tomorrow. Or chocolate grows on a plant and a cocoa bean, therefore it's a vegetable. <laughs> I, I knew that that was my pig squealing. All of those words were pig squeal. The... Um, the, the voice, the thing that was making the squeal was my reptilian brain or my pig. And the chocolate was pig slop. And I would just say, and this is very embarrassing, but this is what worked. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And after 30 years and uh, doing a research study with 40,000 people and doing all this research for big companies and, you know, talking to clients and talking to patients and um, doing all these internet surveys, that's what that's what got me better. I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. It wasn't a miracle. It wasn't instantaneously better. But what happened was, at the moment of impulse, it would wake me up and remind me what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be around food, and I could make the right choice. I'd have those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse. And I kept a journal for eight years, me versus my pig, all the crazy things it said and how I slowly disempowered it and, and found the lies that it was telling me. And um, I published the journal on a whim for a friend who was in publishing. And the thing just took off. We have 600,000 readers and 1,800 reviews. And, and now it's a worldwide business. So, um, Well, that's a fascinating story. And I think, you know, all of this is in, very personal to me because I have in the past suffered from binge eating, overeating, lots of... Um, body image problems and eating problems since I was really young. So I have read your book several years ago, actually, oh. and reread it again recently. Um, but I kind of want to go through a few points on, on your story and just wanted to clarify. When you were 17, seems like you were able to really ramp up a habit that probably was already there, but you were, you really kind of brought it to the next level by the exercise, because with the exercise, you were able to eat more and more and more. But before that, do you feel like you were already in the habit of overeating? And yeah, that's a, that's a very astute question. Nobody ever asked me that. Um, I, I, I ate weird as a young child. I remember between the time I was six and about 10, every morning there would be a big box of chocolate frosted pop -tart, chocolate fudge Pop-Tarts um, ready for me to go. And my mother would order a case of Coca-Cola every week. She didn't know, by the way, that my sister and I weren't drinking it all. She thought we we're drinking it all and buying it for us. But we would take it upstairs and pour it on the carpet behind her bed because we liked the way it sounded. That's a, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but um, but I, I was a weird kid. I, I, I was eating weird. I don't think I ate a vegetable until I was 21 or so. Um, seriously, I don't think I knew what it was. Maybe cream spinach. Um, at school, I would trade my lunch for chocolate milk, and I would go and then I got really good at it, and I would trade different pieces and parts of my lunch for more chocolate milk. So what I had for lunch every day was three or four containers of chocolate milk, and I wouldn't have the um, 
I wouldn't have the actual food. And, um, you know, then when I got home from school, there would be a big box of sugar pops waiting for me. And in the evening, we'd have maybe spaghetti and meatballs or something a little more substantial. But um, I was not eating healthy food when I was a kid. I had a very strong affinity for starch and sugar, basically. And you're right. You're right. And I was a little chubby as a kid. I wasn't really fat because I, I guess I liked to work out when I was a kid. I rode my bike all over the neighborhood and used to play ball with my grandfather and all the other kids in the, in the street. So I was, it was never really a big problem. I, there was a time when my dad grabbed my stomach and said, oh, you're getting fat. And that was miserable for me. But um, by and large, it wasn't a serious problem, but the pattern was there. Yeah. Do you remember overeating and binging or was it just that you were eating all the processed foods? Well, I didn't think of it as overeating and binging. I, I thought of it as a lot of fun. <laughs> so um, I, you know, in the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for, for binge eating, it says that we're supposed to be disgusted with ourselves and we're eating well beyond our own best judgment and a, a bunch of other things. So I don't know if I would formally meet the criteria for it, but I wouldn't meet the criteria for eating like a healthy, normal kid either. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Well, it sounded kind of like standard American diet at that time, though. It's just really funny that you mentioned Pop-Tarts. We were, um, I was with my my family this weekend, and Pop-Tarts came up, and my kids were like, well, what's that? They had never even seen a Pop-Tart or heard of a Pop-Tart because I'm, like, super adamant about their nutrition. Um, so we had to actually explain to them what a Pop-Tart was. And to me, when I think of Pop-Tarts, to me, it's, like, the epitome of, like, 1980s processed foods what I grew up on that too like the sugary cereal pop tarts frozen burritos that was like my diet basically yeah, 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 so yeah. it was just like normal back then you know that was just what you did I'll tell you something funny my sister and I decided we were going to make a time a time capsule when I was nine years old this would be in 1973 and there were two things in the time capsule um pop tart pop tarts and barbie dolls <laughs> <laughs> that's good that's perfect that's really great all right, we, well, should, we should go dig it up on your show now. That would be awesome. Yeah, I love time capsules. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to kind of point out or, or talk about, which I, I love how you talk about the animal brain. I call it, in my head, I call it the animal brain. And I do agree with you 100% that a lot of these subconscious urges come from um, and until we actually start paying attention to it, we don't really realize that that's what's going on. We just feel like it's all just what we do. You know, it's just, just what you do. It's just the habit that you do. And obviously you were able to reinforce that after you were 17, you just really reinforce that animal brain. You know, it got really strong in you. But what I think is interesting too, is the difference between a belief and an identity, um, which is also one of the things that I have a problem with, with Overeaters Anonymous, which I also am familiar with, um, in that you develop this belief that you are, quote, powerless over food um, and that you are an addict. So I wonder if whenever you started to have this different relationship with that inner pig or, you know, the pig in the pig slop, you developed an identity that you weren't going to eat pig slop. And so this new identity gave it, you put more power into refusing the habit and learning to stop the habit rather than the habit is just part of you. So you're never going to be able to, to unlearn it or undo yeah. it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Never Binge Again is more than just coming up with a set of rules that you follow and or decide to take charge of. It's, it's really a fundamental identity shift. Mm -hmm. And in our culture, we are told that addiction is a disease, that uh, people are powerless over these impulses, that there's no human defense against it, that there's a chronic, mysterious, progressive disease festering, you know, doing push-ups in the closet, even if we're eating well. And we need accountability buddies, we need to go to meetings, we need sponsors, we have to you know, work all of the steps and, um, and, and, and that we really are defective in some way. Um, I don't think that's true. I don't think any of that's true. When people say that to me, I'll say, show me the study. Show me the study that proves that people can't resist. Or let me give you a hypothetical situation. Who do you love most in life? Okay, just hypothetically, suppose I found a dictator um, of a foreign country who had it out for you. And they said, if you don't stop eating chocolate entirely, I am going to kidnap the person that you love most in life. I'm going to put them in a dungeon and I'm going to torture them every day of the rest of their lives. But if you do stop, I'm not going to touch them whatsoever. They're going to lead a perfectly normal life. Would you be powerless to stop eating chocolate then? Would, your, would the person you love the most be doomed to live tortured in a dungeon just because you wanted to indulge yourself? No, they, no nobody would do that. So, so if you can come up with one situation, one thought experiment like that that shows that you have that power, I think that invalidates the claim that you're powerless at all. Um, what, what we have, the problem is that we have a healthy appetite that's been corrupted by industry for profit. That's, that's what it is. It's not, um, yes, there are genetic propensities towards being obese, but it doesn't account for all of the variants. As a matter of fact, I think it accounts for 25 or 30% at best. So 75% um, of your cards are uh, still, still yours to play. You still have 75% of the good cards to play if you want to. And, um, and when you are, when you are defining even one rule and following it, if I say, let's say I said, I, I will never have chocolate other than Saturday and Sunday, the last weekend of the month again. What I'm really saying is I've decided to become the kind of person that doesn't eat chocolate, except for the last Saturday and Sunday of the month. It's interesting if you phrase it that way, if you tell people, could you abstain from chocolate every day except for the last Saturday and Sunday of the month ago? Oh, I don't know. But if you say, could you become the kind of person that doesn't eat chocolate except for the last weekend of the month? They go, maybe I can do that. Why is that? It's because character development is an innate part of our psyche. Without knowing it, we all have unwritten rules. So I'll give you an example. Suppose, suppose you walk into a diner and the waitress sits you down and there's a $10 bill on the table, which she didn't see because she, she didn't know the last customers gave her a tip. And she says, I'll be right back. I'm going to go get your menu. Well, while she's getting her menu, you're looking at the $10 bill and you see that there's nobody up front and there's no video camera and there are no windows and nobody would see you take it. Would you take that $10 bill? No. No, no you wouldn't because? Because I'm not the kind of person that steals. You're, you're not a thief. Mm -hmm. As a matter of character, without having to say it, you have an unwritten rule, I never steal. That person worked hard for their money. I'm, I'm not the kind of person in society. You decided that a long time ago. There are other things you've decided. You probably don't run up to attractive men and kiss them in the street, do you? No. Or do, no. do, you, kick a do, you, do you kick policemen in the tush? No. Do you push old ladies into traffic? Maybe once on, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you've developed character. 
And it might seem silly. You might say, well, of course, who would do that? But the point is, we're all born as animals. We all have to be acculturated to develop this. These are things that we learned. It's not something that, you know, you put a two-year-old and they might kick a policeman in the tush or they might pee in their mother-in-law's living room. They, they might do a lot of things until they've developed that character strength. So what I'm arguing for is thinking through your most troubled um, food triggers or eating behaviors and making rules that define the kind of person that you want to be, developing your character just a little further. It's just articulating who you want to be. The reason it works, by the way, is that it eliminates the need for decision-making. See, if I said, even though it's the same thing in terms of the number of days, if I said, I abstain from chocolate 90% of the time, um, but I eat it 10% of the time, that's a guideline, and it's a good guideline. You know, most people would agree that if you ate healthy 90% of the time, you would do well. What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is every time you're in front of a chocolate bar, you have to make a decision. And decision-making wears down your willpower. All the research says that decision-making is a fatigable muscle. If you want to look it up, it's called ego depletion. Decision-making is a fatigable muscle. There are only so many good decisions we can make over the course of the day. That's why people start out the day with the best of intentions, but wind up by the refrigerator at seven o'clock at night. It's because they've made all their decisions. They've worn their willpower down over the course of the day. Even non-food decisions will wear your willpower down while we're talking about that. So people have trouble resisting marshmallows if you give them math problems to do beforehand. But um, if I say I never eat chocolate other than the last Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of the month, that's still 90% of the time I'm not having chocolate, but I don't have to make food decisions 90% of the time. Mm -hmm. And so I have willpower to, to execute that. Yeah. So I guess we got here, we got onto the soapbox because you asked me, um, is this about identity? It is absolutely about identity. And our culture is one big setup for you to feel like a failure with food. Mm -hmm. The advertising industry beans five to 7,000 messages to you about food um, almost none of which are about fruit and vegetables. And they basically all say, you can't resist. Mm -hmm. right? You don't have the power to resist. The addiction treatment industry says, you can't quit even if you want to. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time. And that's only if you admit that you're powerless and go to these meetings and make yourself dependent upon someone else who can't do it either. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a crazy thing to say. So, yeah. So it's yeah. all about building an identity. And what what's so exciting is we figured out that this doesn't have to take years. You can actually, there are a lot of people that read the book, make a decision at one rule, and then that's just how it is going forward. A lot of times people make a decision, they fail, they make a decision again, they fail, and then they finally make a decision. But, but it's not, this is not like in-depth psychotherapy. You don't have to sit by the river and meditate on your navel or have a conscious contact with the higher power. You just have to do a little bit of thinking work to get really clear on what healthy versus unhealthy food for you is, what kind of person you want to be, and what role you want each food to play in your life. And then listen for the pig, your reptilian brain, your food monster, whatever you want to call it. Listen for it trying to talk you out of it. Now, by definition, since the food monster, since, since a pig squeal is any thought, feeling, or impulse that suggests you're ever going to break your rule between now and the day that you die, since that's the definition, you know that if your pig is squealing, that it's up to no good. Mm -hmm. So you can safely ignore it, even if you 
even if it seems like it's making a lot of sense, you can still ignore it. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I think, I think it's great. And that's why I brought up the identity thing, because I think it's super important. And one of the ways that I know that it makes a huge difference is because I'm vegan. I identify as being vegan. Me too. I know that because of that, it's, it's not difficult for me to not eat animal products. I, I don't go into a restaurant and be like, well, maybe today I'll have a hamburger. Like there's no, it's, it's just not an option. It's just not something that's going to happen. It's never been difficult at all. Once I decided I was going to be vegan, not eating animal products is not difficult for me. Right. And because it's part of my identity and it's part of my identity that I value very highly. And so I think that that can make a huge difference in the way that we perceive the world and make our choices and it, it can potentially make some of these decisions almost effortless. Um, one of the things I kind of wanted to bring up, because I, I know, and then you talk about it in your book, how it can be controversial, and, and I've heard some of your other um, interviews and things like that, is to address the, the name that you use for your animal brain, your reptilian brain. You called it, the way that you discovered it yourself is the pig, you call the things that you aren't going to eat, pig slop. For some people that may seem pretty harsh, kind of rude. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about this and maybe some other terms that people may use if they're not comfortable with that? Yeah, so first of all, I never intended to share it. This is gonna be a very private thing for me. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I, I didn't really think about the social implications. And, <laughs> and I wasn't a vegan at the time. I didn't think about the fact that real pigs in the real world are suffering tremendously and they're very sweet animals and they need our help. So I'm not, I'm not talking about a real pig. It's, it's more like a wild boar, but it's not even a wild boar. It's a mental construct. It's, it's yeah. just an organ in, in your body. And people think that they're going to degrade their self-esteem because it's like you're calling yourself a pig. But you're really not. What, what actually happens is you enhance your self-esteem because you gain a greater sense of self-control. It, it's like taking control over your bladder. It's just this thing in your body. It generates a really powerful urge. You have to pay some attention to it, even when it's misdirected. You have to figure out what does it authentically need because if you don't feed yourself, just like if you don't eventually go and pee, your bladder is going to find a way for you to pee one way or the other. And I figured that out at 4 p.m. on the um, on the Route 95 on the way to Boston one time. But, but <laughs> um, so, so um, that having been said, there's no reason you have to call it a pig. It's, it's something that you want to treat like it's not something you want to nurture back to health. It's more like a challenging wolf in the alpha pack. So it's something that requires you to deal with, with aggression. And for that reason, it shouldn't be cuddly and cute, but you can call it your food monster or your junkyard dog, or people have all sorts of other names for it. And I'm perfectly fine with that. It works perfectly well. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you one last funny story about it. Um, once in a great while, I will be in a, I'll be in a bookshop or, you know, a store someplace. Very, 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 very rarely. Someone will kind of start looking at me and they can't remember my name. They, they just, they just start, they point at me and they go, pig guy, pig guy. Pig guy. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so, That's awesome. This is, this is my, this is my punishment for using the word pig. But. That's hilarious. 
Have you found in all the years that you've been doing this that there's a certain gender or personality type that this works best for? Um, you know, it's funny when I published the book, I put a big star on it that said for men only, because I figured only men were going to be interested in controlling the pig inside them. Would you know that at least by my readership surveys and the clients that we work with, 95% of my clients are women. Mm -hmm. So I took the big for men star off pretty quickly. And when I took the big for men star off, it rose to number one, mm -hmm. um, which is really interesting. So women seem to take to it more than men. I don't know why. I, I know that women are more likely to admit that they have an eating disorder. So that's part of it. Mm -hmm. And there's a higher incidence of eating disorders among women than men. The other thing in terms of a personality type is that this tends to appeal to people for whom, I, I call them rules-based people, where structure really works for them. They, mm -hmm. they like knowing where the boundaries are. Um, often they kind of like school. They, they moved well through those program learning things. And you don't have to be like that, but um, those tend to be the people that succeed most. People get in trouble when they bounce back and forth between this approach and intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. Intuitive eating is an approach where you say there's no distinction between healthy and unhealthy food, everything in moderation. Just learn to you know, listen to how you're feeling, eat when you're hungry, stop when you fall, that kind of thing. And it's a really good idea in theory, but it doesn't work for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, you can combine it with never binge again in the sense that you look for all the dangerous intersections as if you were a city traffic planner and you make rules to control what happens at those dangerous intersections, but then you just drive freely between them. So you can, you can combine it a little bit, but a lot of people I find, they jump back and forth and then they're in this nether world where nothing, there's no principles and no, nothing that re that's really working for them. And so I'd caution you against that. I'd say, if you don't wanna work with me, go work with intuitive eating people and make that work. But if you're gonna work with me, then work with me. Don't, don't, um, don't jump back and forth because that's that's just going to sabotage you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised about most of your readers being women because I agree that I have had, I don't think I've had any men ever identify as a binge eater in my, I'm a health coach as well as being a pediatrician. Um, oh. And it just doesn't seem like men identify either with that term or I don't know, you're saying maybe they just don't admit to it or don't identify with it. But I feel like it's super common in females and especially perfectionistic, high achieving females Yes, um, that are just pretty much like rocking it everywhere. And then food is their thing, you know, um, that they end up having difficulties with and feel out of control with. And then the binging cycles get worse and worse and worse. I see that all the time. So um, I feel like, you know, there's, there's definitely an association there. Um, but I think, you know, that you saw that connection with the rules base, it makes a lot of sense. Because if there's a person that just wants that structure, they find the structure, they're able to break that habit loop using this and it works for them, then they, you know, integrate it with their identity, then they're probably set, you know? And yeah. I know a lot of people like that. I know people that have been able to use these kinds of rules they're set, they're set for years and years and years and they're good. <laughs> so, um, my, my friend, Erin Valentine once told me, she says, I love my rules. I feel all snuggled in. Yeah. And that's as compared to what some people will say, which is, um, 
I'm going to break any rule that anybody makes for me. I'll even make break rules that I make for myself. <laughs> so when I tell my husband, I was like, if you really don't want me to do something, don't tell me no. Like, <laughs> I, I, I have this part of me that as, as soon as somebody says you can't do it, I was raised the only child. If you tell me don't do that, or you can never eat that again or something like that. You tell me to do that. It's it's off. All bets are off. That's the first thing I'm going for. So, right. so yeah, I um, I don't know how well I do with some rules, but well, what is in, in marketing they call that the takeaway sell. You you show a kid an ice cream cone and then you take it away from them. They're going to yeah. come after that ice cream cone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You're like, actually, this ice cream is not meant for you. It's just not <laughs> the best ice cream for you. So I'm not going to even offer it to you. You're like, wait, wait, wait. No, that's a perfect ice cream for me. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. Um, so what is your opinion on dieting? How would you define dieting? And, and what, how do you feel about diets in general? Well, I'm looking to work with people to help them construct a food plan that they can live with for life. And I, I think that what people don't understand who struggle with binge eating or, or serious overeating is that they're not just addicted to binging and overeating. They're di- addicted to the dieting part of the cycle too. Mm-hmm. So what's happened is you've thrown the brain into a perceived feast and famine cycle. And it says that, gee, if calories and nutrition are not regularly available in this environment for long periods of time, then as soon as they are available, I'm going to have to hoard them. So that, And that's why, for example, I recommend that if you did binge, that you don't make up for it with a couple of days of fasting. I'd like you to have breakfast the very next morning. Um, you make up for it with a week or two of normal eating. It works so much better every time. In terms of the definition of dieting and where is the line, if people are losing more than a pound or two per week, I tend to find that it's not stable and they wind up bouncing back all the way and worse. So, you know, you create a caloric deficit. You can use some of the applications like, oh, MyFitnessPal or Chronometer.com and track your calories for a couple of days and create a deficit underneath what you need to be at. If you want to lose a pound a week, then that's about 500 calories a day. Don't do more than that. As a matter of fact, when I work with people, I usually tell them not to worry about losing weight at all in the first couple of weeks. I just want them to take one rule and prove to themselves that they have the power to follow it. And that restores their hope and power and enthusiasm. And it it eliminates the sense of um, despair and hopelessness. And once they realize that they can do it, it's like that ship has started turning around in the shipping lane and maybe it weighs about the same thing, but now it's going in the right direction. Then you start to create a slow deficit. You, most people, I don't give people a diet. I ask them where the extra calories coming from. And almost everybody knows where they could swap out some industrial processed, you know, calorically dense, but nutritionally sparse things for something that was more nutritious and you swap them out little by little you create the deficit you do a little more walking or running or something and before you know it the weight's coming off yeah and just like you had said the example before it can be as simple as i'm only going to have chocolate on the last saturday and sunday of the month i mean just a very simple rule start one at a time it's not going to be this i i know a guy that lost 150 calories a day sort of thing so yeah I, i know a guy that lost 150 pounds with one rule saying, I'm, I'm never going back for seconds. Mm-hmm. And he loved to eat at fast food restaurants, didn't want to cut anything out. It was just, I just don't go back for seconds. And he thought it was a joke. I, I didn't actually coach him. One of my um, friends coached him. He thought it was a joke, but before we knew it, he had some momentum and then they got inspired and he made another rule and 
Um, so it's that kind of thing. You can also make rules that have nothing to do with the foods that you eat, but have to do with eating it more mindfully. So you could say, I always put my fork down between bites, or I'll never eat standing up again, or I'll never eat while I'm looking at a screen again. So you can, you can create rules that support mindfulness in addition to um, restricting food. You can create conditional rules that say, I'll only ever eat pretzels in a major league baseball car park. You can create rules that are positive rules, like I will always have five or six servings of fruit and vegetables every day. Mm -hmm. Or I will always start my day with two ounces with um, two glasses of pure spring water. Mm -hmm. That's so. beautiful. What is the role of shame on eating and eating behavior? Oh, that's such a good question. You really prepared for this. I'm really impressed. <laughs> um, so after you make a mistake, there is an appropriate role for a little bit of guilt and shame. Most people think that it's to be avoided at all costs because their experience has been that they're really beat down and you know castigated by shame. It gets stuck in their head. But if you think about the appropriate role of pain, well, you're a physician. Do you, do you know what the name of the disorder is for children that can't feel pain? Isn't there some disorder where children can't feel pain? Gee, it's not off the top of my head. Well, there, there is one. And what I know about it, I'll, I'll look it up so that next time I, I don't sound so empty. But what I know about it is that we can't keep those kids alive for more than four or five years because they don't have the feedback mechanism in place to show them when they're making a mistake. So they can't pay attention to sharp objects and walls and cars and things like that. What, if you think about it, the psychological role of guilt and shame should be about the same thing. So, you know, if you touch a hot stove, you are not supposed to say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well put my whole hand down on there and leave it because I'm never gonna do any better, right? That seems ridiculous. You're supposed to feel the pain for a second, say, whoa, what the hell is that? Figure out how you're going to avoid, sorry for cursing, how you're going to avoid touching that in the future, make the adjustments, and then forgive yourself and go on. There's no purpose to castigating yourself after you've made the adjustments. When you make an eating mistake, the appropriate thing to do is go, whoa, okay, that's serious because I made a, I made a serious vow to myself. What did I do wrong? Did, the, did my food demon squeal and I didn't hear it? Did I not nourish myself well enough that day? Did I not get enough sleep? Did I not have enough to eat at lunch? What did I do wrong? How am I going to fix that in the future? And then let it go and start again. You're aiming at the bullseye. You miss it. You don't shoot all the arrows up into the air or into the audience. You just aim at it again. Um, but but what, what it turns out, this is very, very interesting. And this was a piercing insight for me. The role of excess shame and guilt the role of getting stuck with shame and guilt and perseverating on it and getting round and round and round and round in your head, it's pig motivated. It's binge motivated. It, the pig is trying to get you to feel too weak, too pathetic to resist the neck binge. Mm -hmm. If you refuse to continue yelling at yourself, I learned this from Carol Munter, if you refuse to continue yelling at yourself, it's very, very difficult to continue binging. So what I tell people is we need to commit with perfection, but forgive yourself with dignity. You want to commit with perfection because if you, if an archer is um, aiming at the bullseye and doesn't actually visualize the arrow going into the bullseye before he lets it go, if he's thinking, 
gee, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't. You know, I don't know if I accounted for the wind or whatever. That's going to distract his energy from focus. So you always want to commit with perfection. Um, anything less means I'll try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore. But when you make a mistake, you forgive, forgive, forgive yourself with dignity. Mm-hmm. I, I want to just give you one example of what committing with perfection means. Because the nature of a commitment in many instances is perfection. Mm-hmm. When you get married, nobody says, gee, honey, I am 98% sure that I can be faithful to you indefinitely, but there sure are a lot of attractive people out there, and I don't want to lie to you. Progress, not perfection, right? Um, that, that's just, it's just not how we work. There, there are certain things that we commit with perfection for, and that allows us to purge our mind of doubt and insecurity, and it, it, um, it's the nature of a commitment. So, so guilt and shame have a minor role after a mistake. It's okay to feel them. You can do a lot of damage if you work really hard to feel no guilt or shame. And that's what happens in places like Overeaters Anonymous. They'll say that, I mean, this, original, this originated from drinking and drugs. They'll say that indulgence is not a moral issue. Mm-hmm. Why not? If you know that when you take a drink, you're likely to get behind the wheel and kill or maim somebody, why isn't that first drink a moral issue? I, I think it is a moral issue. So if you, if you try to obviate yourself or absolve yourself of all guilt and shame, you're going to twist your mind into a pretzel and put yourself in a situation that leads you to feeling powerless and out of control. So take a little bit of guilt and pain. It's not going to kill you. And then let it go. Forgive yourself with dignity. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. I think I think guilt can be helpful because it's an indicator of something you want to change, a mistake you made, something you want to prevent in the future. But shame is not as helpful because, again, that goes back to part of your identity. Suddenly you're like, oh, well, I'm just going to be a binge eater for the rest of my life. I might as well just give up now. I'm a bad person, you know? So then all of a sudden you're just like, well, and that's why it makes sense that then you would go to your animal brain and be like, all right, well, we're binge eaters. This is just what we do. And we're just going to go for it, you know? So, so that, that's a traditional distinction between guilt and shame. And I think it's useful in a lot of situations when people are feeling overly involved with guilt or shame. Um, however, I think it's okay to feel a little bit of shame also because we're trying to develop a certain kind of character and we let ourselves down. And I don't think that people should be caught up with that shame. I think they need to let that go just like they let the guilt go. But I think if they fight it too hard, what winds up happening is they're giving up, um, they're giving up their responsibility and power and their ability to develop their character in the way that they want to. And so part of the problem with overeating is that people traditionally have come from an overly shamed background. And if you look at, if you look at most overeaters who are now thin, like even on my face, you can probably still see some shame because that's what I wore for all those years. And it was part of my, you know, part of my upbringing to, to wear that shame. So I, I think a lot of overeaters are very frightened of the emotion, but you don't have to be frightened of it. You can let it pass through you a lot more quickly. And um, it, it's, it, if you fight that too hard, it's very difficult to make the character development important to you. And that's, that's what I'm asking people to consider. That's very interesting. So do you have any tips or recommendations on how we can prevent binge eating or overeating from developing in our children? Um, children will do uh, 90% of what you do and 10% of what you say. 
And so the first thing you want to do is lead by example. And then you want to study a bunch about nutrition and make sure that they're well nourished and start bringing in healthier alternatives. So rather than a chocolate bar, make a really good um, banana kale smoothly with non-alkalized cocoa or something like that. Um, rather than, you know, rather than pizza, try making some brown rice with tomato sauce and nutritional yeast or something like that. And, and very slowly introduce them to more whole natural foods while you yourself are the shining star. You need to lead by example, be the change that you want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. I love it. And definitely agree with the whole foods and especially the whole plant foods and especially the beans, <laughs> those beans. I can't get enough of those beans. So, okay, that's all very good. I will say for the benefit of your vegan audience or your interested vegan audience or your plant-based audience that I had psoriasis and rosacea and eczema and high triglycerides and high cholesterol, and it all disappeared within six months of going vegan. So uh, I'm sure you have all kinds of resources for them to make that happen, but it's, it's a miraculous transformation. It's not nearly as hard as you think it is, especially today. There's so many alternatives and um, I am a, like I said, I'm a wholehearted supporter of anybody that's um, promoting the vegan message. So more power oh. to you. Well, thank you so much. I, thank you for saying that. That really helps because I think there's so many people that hear from other physicians and other specialists that diet has nothing to do with some of those things, you know, especially things like psoriasis and autoimmune conditions. They'll say, nope, diet has nothing to do with it. So the more stories that we can hear of people being able to reverse those conditions, the better it is for other people that want to give it a try. One question that I ask all of my guests on this show is what personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it? And how do you maintain it? Hmm. I exercise every day. Maybe I'll take off two days a month, but mm -hmm. every day I exercise. I developed it because at one point I woke up and I said, I feel so much better on the days that I exercise. I get so much more done. I eat better. I smiling more. My mind is clearer. I get, I'm more um, insightful and productive with my patients. I, I'm just so much better that I have to think about this like brushing my teeth. Mm -hmm. And so when I had that insight and I realized that I couldn't go without it, just like I wouldn't go without brushing my teeth, then it was kind of easy after that. I, I go to a lot of classes and I tell myself that all I have to do is get myself to the class so if I show up at CrossFit, doesn't matter what I feel like, doesn't matter how tired I am, it doesn't matter what I want to do. And and I'll meander through it if I have to. I, I'm not I'm not always the Navy SEAL pushing my absolute hardest in the workout. I'm sometimes the old guy in the corner trying not to get hurt. But I'll do what they tell me to do. I'll say, I'm gonna use your lighter radio tape weight today if I have to, but I'll get through. Mm -hmm. And I decided that it was better to do something every day than to burn out or you know, just like with dieting, it's it's better to eat well every day and have a very slow, steady weight loss or a very, you know, I'm not at my ideal weight right now. I'm probably six or seven pounds above it, but sometimes the juice ain't worth the squeeze. Mm -hmm. so, so, sometimes you just have to accept the less perfect mm -hmm. solution and just keep going anyway. Oh, that's beautiful. So you really developed that good intrinsic motivation for exercise because you knew that it's just going to make your life overall better. You're just going to be more joyful, happier, more stable person, it sounds like. Yeah. 
and then I would read about it and I read about the hormonal changes and you know in my family every male on both sides I believe every male on both sides has had a heart attack in their 40s and I'm the only one that beat those odds Ooh, congratulations. So that motivated me too thank you that's awesome so obviously the choices you've made have made a difference because it sounds like the odds were very high <laughs> yeah against your favor that's great so CrossFit is what you mainly do for exercise oh I go to yoga I, I just moved to Fort Lauderdale so I go running on the beach most days um I sometimes I will you know I'll stretch with my girlfriend it's it's um I do different things different days Sounds but I, I have a little spreadsheet where I keep track and I try to make sure I do three CrossFits, three yogas and two runs every week. That's awesome. And I agree with you about if, especially if you can find a class for the listeners out there, sometimes the habit is just getting to it, just start it, just put your shoes on and then let the instructor take over, do what you can, but don't feel like you have to kill yourself every time. If I tell myself that every time I do a class, I'm going to just gun it and kill myself, I wouldn't do them because I'd be like, I'm just too tired today. But sometimes you get there and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to do that great. But you get warmed up and you do awesome and you feel great. So I think that's a wonderful approach. All right, Glenn, how can listeners connect with you and what services do you provide? Okay. What I want you to do is um, telepathically think about the domain neverbingagain.com. <laughs> I want you to just never will your brain the browser in your brain. If you go there, go to neverbingeagain.com and you click on the big red button, you'll get to the reader bonuses section. And what you want to do there is download a free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format. There are also links to the paid versions if you want the uh, physical or audible copy, but they're identical. Um, there are two, two of the bonuses are really important. One of them is a set of food plan starter templates. So I know people are in different dietary philosophies and I created a set of rules, hypothetical rules that you can modify for your own benefit. You know, one for um, ketogenic, one for vegan, like, like, like we are, one for macrobiotic, one for um, point counters, calorie counters, really what, whatever you're doing. Personally, I would love it if you decided to become vegan and you know, I think that you'll resonate with my stuff a little bit more, but my brand promise is to help people stick to the food plan of their choice. And I really do keep to, to that promise because it's, it's better than binging. Even though I think paleolithic is the wrong choice. Um, I work with a lot of people who are paleo and they do a lot better than when they were binging. And then sometimes they come around and they start eating more plants. Mm -hmm. So neverbingeagain.com, you'll, you'll also get a free set of recorded coaching sessions so you can hear how this practice works in reality, uh, what what we're talking about here today in the abstract sounds really weird. Like, why does she have this sophisticated psychologist on her program who has a pig inside him and he doesn't eat pig slop? And what, like, what's going on here? You know, is she crazy? But but she's not. This is actually a very compassionate, life giving process. And I know as as much fun as we had today here talking about it, I know that when you're in the throes of binge eating, it's an incredible level of suffering. It's almost like not having a life. And um, there's nothing you've done with food that I haven't done. So you don't have to be ashamed. You can um, go to neverbingeagain.com, sign up for the reader bonuses, read the book and see what you think. Awesome. Sounds great. And I'll definitely put a link on the show notes. And that was wonderful. Thank you so much, Glenn, for your time today on Veggie Doctor Radio. I had a lot of fun. Thank you, dear. I hope that you have a plantastic day. When it's dinner time.
I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash rocketsurgeonsmusic. Also, for more information on my work, you can find me at VeggieFitKids on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, or you can email me at VeggieDoctor at VeggieFitKids.com. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast, and contact me if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again, and have a fantastic day.